You're listening to DNA Info's Upper West Side podcast, which delves deeper into the lives and experiences of Upper West Siders. I'm Emily Frost. I'm talking with Deputy Inspector Marlon Laren, the commanding officer of the 24th Precinct, which runs from West 86th Street to West 110th Street. This podcast is brought to you by the Friedman Rosenthal team of Halstead Property. They were voted Team of the Year on the Upper West Side in 2015, with an outstanding history of service and client satisfaction, and top 1% company-wide. Go to halstead.com slash frteam to find your next apartment today. So Deputy Inspector Laren, I would love to start off with knowing a little bit about more about your trajectory, how you got to where you are today. I have a total of 15 years of service and that's starting as a police officer in the year 2000. I was assigned to the 4-7 precinct in the North Central Bronx and right away I realized that I would like to be a manager in the police department. So I studied for sergeant, and then I went to Harlem in the 2-8 precinct. I was there for about a year, and I did some time at the police cadet corps in the police academy. And what that program is, it's a police apprenticeship program, and it helps college students, juniors, and seniors with tuition stipends and also a flexible hourly job, mm-hmm. typically at a precinct. And the idea is that they achieve a bachelor's degree within four years, and they come on to be police officers. I actually am a product of that program. After I did that, I I studied for lieutenant, and I spent some time at the 33rd Precinct in Washington Heights, and some time here at Petroboro Manhattan North at the overhead command uh, for all the precincts uptown. Then I studied for captain. And once I achieved that promotion, I was in East Harlem, the 2-5 precinct, which is also the neighborhood where I grew up. So again, going back oh, to my roots. Ask yes. You, so you grew up in East Harlem? Yeah, I went back as a captain. Yeah, mm-hmm. so it's like mm-hmm. I keep going back to my beginnings. And yeah. it's nice to see things go full circle. It was good to work in East Harlem and to go back to my old neighborhood. And I was Did there people for, recognize you? No, surprisingly, no, 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 not at all. I was very quiet, and uh, I just went to school, went home, did my work. So not a lot of people, you know, recognized me on the street. But I was very familiar with the terrain, so I never had to look up at the streets to realize to where I was. I would just know. Yeah. It's second nature, so that was uh, beneficial to me. And uh, after two years there, I was tapped to be the precinct commander here, the 24th precinct. And it's really an honor to be in this neighborhood and to serve everyone who lives here, works here, visits. It's a beautiful neighborhood. And our goal is to make it better as your police department. And just this December that passed, I was promoted to deputy inspector as a result of the hard work that the men and women of the precinct have done uh, and the positive community feedback, because without that, we wouldn't be a success. I'm happy to say that it will be two years here on April 7th, and our average lifespan of a precinct commander is about three years, so we'll see what the next step is. Does that mean you have to leave at three years? That's the average time. We don't really have a choice at at Mm -hmm. this level. all, All of those moves are figured out by the police commissioner, the chief of department. What They do know that the job of a precinct commander is a 24-hour commitment, so that's why that's the average time. Uh, 
If it was maybe less demanding, then we would last a, a lot longer out here. Usually it's another precinct that we get sent to or an administrative assignment, mm -hmm. like headquarters or the police academy. You know, you spend all this time getting to know everybody, and then the new person has to start fresh. Right. Well, that, that can be unnerving mm -hmm. for the community stakeholders, our block associations, and that is some of the comments that I've been getting lately because after the promotion, the community knows that um. usually the commander is on the downtrend and on their way out. So my message to the community is not to fret because the team will typically be the same. All of the people that are standing behind me, the domestic violence officers, the traffic safety officers, the crime prevention officer, community affairs officers, that team stays intact. And really what you're seeing is, is just a new face to the precinct. So I know that can be unnerving because you learn somebody, then they leave, and now you have to learn somebody else. But the way that the job of the precinct commander is designed, by virtue of what we do, we have to be responsive yeah. as, as much as possible because that's really the only way to solve problems. You mentioned it's a 24-7 job. What does a typical day look like for you? Well, traditionally, precinct commanders work from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., uh, with Saturday and Sundays off, but we have to move with the events. So if there's a local parade happening, uh, we have to be present just to ensure the safety of everyone involved, the participants, and then just the regular folks that are walking up and down the street. Mm -hmm. uh, and then also we have a lot of meetings, uh, a lot of traffic meetings, crime meetings, strategy meetings that we we respond to, to our overhead command, patrol Burr Manhattan North, and also downtown at headquarters. Uh, a typical day for precinct commander, there is relatively no downtime. A lot of phone calls, a lot of emails, a lot of meetings, and then uh, on your own time, you find yourself doing things as well, just to catch up, because you right. can't afford to fall behind. What if something sure. really horrific happens? Do you have to then come back into the Upper West Side and be there? I yes. Well, the, the typical job that I call the job where you wake the president, so to speak, right, right. would be a police officer involved shooting. If an officer discharges his or her firearm against someone, or if an officer ends up being hurt as a result of someone shooting them or a stabbing, then we are expected to come in and coordinate the resources, the response, notifying community stakeholders, the media, just to let everyone know what exactly is happening and just to assuage any fears because when an officer is involved in a shooting, the response is, is, is Herculean. It's just a lot of resources that go into it and it could be scary for folks in the neighborhood. So, But most recently, we uh, unfortunately, we recorded a traffic fatality in January on 96th Street in Amsterdam. And in that case, I was already off duty, but I was in the city and I was able to come back just to be present and to ensure that uh, the investigation is being handled properly and that no stone is left unturned. But it's always good to come back if you can. Yeah, because, so you live a little outside the city, so yes, not do you far. ever find yourself turning around in your car? I, I have, I have, yeah. absolutely. If it's something that uh, serious, it's just, it's better to be there because you're present as the information is coming in, as mm -hmm. opposed to coming to work a day or two later and trying to catch up. It puts you at a significant disadvantage. Yeah. So if you're there, 
you take in the sights, you take in the sounds, and you're able to, to really uh, respond to what's happening and, and you're intimately involved, and, and that's what is really expected of us. Yeah, and then do you sleep with your phone by the bed, like yes. waiting for calls? And <laughs> yes. You I've, can't put it on silent, can no, you? No, no, we, we cannot. And also the police department has our home numbers as well. In the event that the cell phone goes down, we would get a phone call at home. So it might even make sense to sleep at the precinct. <laughs> have you ever done that? Do they have a cot for you? Uh, they, they do, but it's very difficult. It's very uncomfortable. It's yeah. just hustling and bustling and the sounds. It's hard. We've talked about how a lot of calls seem to be coming from certain locations, that right. there's repeat offenders mm-hmm. in locations, and one of them was um, Freedom House, the shelter on 95th Street. Mm-hmm. Why is it that there are these hot spots? Well, what, what we see, and, and like you said, I, I do appreciate the question, the Freedom House, there are others that come to mind. Uh, the Yale at 316 West 97th, there's another site at 312 West 109. What, what we see is just the concentration of folks that are crammed into these places. They, they, they don't have the best of life circumstances. And regrettably, what happens is that those who feel that they are at at more of a disadvantage than others, meaning their own neighbors, they'll take the opportunity to take things from them. And, and most recently, we had a burglary committed at the Yale where a television was taken out of someone's room. In another case, they have common bathrooms, meaning that all of the persons on the same floor have to share the restroom, so some, some of them don't lock the doors. So that leaves them open to victimization. A cell phone was taken recently. I just feel that the folks should just live in harmony in the same place, but it it doesn't happen, unfortunately. They're they're doing it to themselves. Some people are just more prone to to theft. Uh, They can't help themselves. And they see uh, an easy way to capitalize off of it. A stolen cell phone, they can fence it and, and sell it. Mm-hmm. for a couple of dollars. If they're into substance abuse or alcohol abuse, they can feed their habits. So uh, unfortunately, it's just uh, too much of, of the same, so to speak. And every now and then, we also will see some type of assault involving mm-hmm. a knife or even empty hands. And the tempers flare when you put a lot of people in cramped quarters and, and again, maybe with not the best of of resources and they just don't use much foresight and they just behave impulsively so and in the case of freedom house there were a lot of outstanding warrants and um, you did raid the shelter to try and round up those people that were living there with with outstanding warrants but not everybody agreed with that tactic why did you choose to do that and would you do it again well what happened at the time that's when I first arrived at the precinct, which was in 2014. Mm -hmm. And what I noticed, the difference between the Upper West Side and East Harlem, where I was the captain, was that up here, most of our index crimes are property thefts. So burglaries, grand larcenies, uh, breaking into autos to remove a GPS system or even loose change. So I did not have any hard data that linked the residents of the shelter to these crimes, but what we did was we conducted a survey of the residents with open warrants, and what we looked for were the folks who were prone to these Mm -hmm. kinds of crimes. So 
people who had just stealing things yes or breaking into cars people have been arrested for burglary for grand larceny for uh, committing property thefts in the transit system others who did not have that kind of history we did not target for the sweep and what we did was we worked together with the staff at the shelter and we conducted the early morning uh, warrant sweep and we removed uh, if i'm not mistaken about 22 persons to court to present them before the judge and uh the the issue there was the the just coming in very early in the morning uh some folks felt that that was a little too intrusive and uh, alarming and I, I could see how that can be interpreted. The direction that we're going now is we will pursue someone with a warrant in a shelter but it would have to be something a little more high value than, than that, than let's say a summons for failing to go to court for urinating in public. Mm-hmm. So what we would look for is someone who's wanted on an active misdemeanor case or an active felony case. Uh, Again, something that has a little more substance to it Mm -hmm. as opposed to a criminal court summons. Did crime drop after after that? Surprisingly, it did not. It it actually picked up a little, so we couldn't make a direct correlation Mm -hmm. between bringing in the folks who had active warrants and these arrest histories and the crimes and based on on some of the arrests that we've made not all of them live in the neighborhood we have people that come in from uptown or even from the bronx we've had some folks with brooklyn addresses so uh so so no we couldn't make that direct correlation it was uh just a plan that we devised just to see if if it would affect it but um we haven't done any Mm -hmm. since then and we don't see ourselves continuing it in the future Mm -hmm. unless like i said they have a active investigation into a major crime. This podcast is brought to you by the Friedman Rosenthal team of Halstead Property. As a resident for 25 years of the Upper West Side and a dad here, Mark D. Friedman knows what families and clients are looking for when it comes to buying an apartment in the neighborhood. Along with his deep understanding of the West Side, he has a breadth of knowledge about properties of varying sizes and price points. Mark has shepherded purchases and sales of apartments going anywhere from $400,000 to $20 million. Find out more about Mark and his partner Richard and their Halstead team at Halstead dot com slash fr team one of the precinct's major areas of patrol is the 96th street corridor that's mm-hmm. also where a lot of crashes happen mm-hmm. um what what is the strategy there okay um yes 2014 was a very active year in terms of traffic fatalities for the 24th precinct in particular it was a very sad year we recorded a total of seven and at the beginning of the year in January, there were three fatalities alone on the 96th Street Corridor. And the response was, uh, was multi-agency. Uh, I believe that it was uh, swift in terms of DOT with their re-engineering and uh, the way they structured West End Avenue, the 96th Street subway hub, which gained significant traffic in terms of foot, foot traffic of folks coming in and out of the train system. And with the enforcement, which is significant in this corridor, we spend most of our time along the 96th Street Corridor, more towards the west side than towards Central Park West because we do not want a reoccurrence. But we also combine that with education. Mm -hmm. So we 
visit schools, senior centers. I have done so personally as well. We are aggressive in terms of the enforcement, in so much that in 2015, we did not sustain anything close to what we did in 2014 along the 96th Street Corridor. Our one fatality in 2015 was way up on 109th Street on Columbus Avenue. But we are also working with the elected officials. Some resolutions have been passed where even if someone ordinarily would not get arrested on site, now they could if uh, they fail to exercise due care. And at our fatality in November on 109th Street, the taxi driver was arrested for that. So no longer does it have to be someone outrightly under the influence of drugs or alcohol or someone who just drove in an extremely negligent manner. Um, I think all of these things blended together have attributed to the reduction in traffic fatalities. Unfortunately, this year in January on 96th Street in Amsterdam, uh, we lost uh, a person to a motorcyclist that was traveling eastbound on 96th Street and collided with our pedestrian. But again, the, the response was very swift. Uh, we implement, after a death, a 72-hour plan. And in those plans, we seek to enforce as many violations as we can so that the Department of Transportation and we can conduct an assessment as to what can make that intersection better. What improvements can we recommend mm -hmm. for more safety for the pedestrians in the future? And in this case, we noticed that uh, lighting could have been a factor. Repainting the crosswalk markings, the street markings for vehicles, we issued over 130 summonses within just three days, and then also about seven arrests. And we do that, again, just to give us a time to study the intersection. And before this fatality occurred, I believe there were about 50, 50 motor vehicle collisions in the precinct up until that time, up until January 14th, and we only recorded two on 96th Street in Amsterdam. So it wasn't necessarily in our sights, uh, so to speak, because of the volume of collisions, but the entire 96th Street corridor is something that we always concern ourselves with and something that has come up in conversation, uh, you know, just thinking about and brainstorming about 96th Street as to why does it attract this kind of, of attention and, and these fatalities is probably a contributing factor is that there are not many streets in Manhattan that will take you from one highway directly to the other. And we did notice that 96th Street, you could get off on the Henry Hudson Parkway and travel directly across and catch the FDR drive. Other major thoroughfares in Manhattan, they have significant breaks or rerouting. Again, we, we will continue to enforce whatever we can enforce, and the hazardous violations, the Vision Zero violations, they're always on the top of the list, and uh, those would be cell phones, texting, failing to yield to a pedestrian, uh, things of that nature, disobeying a signal, disobeying a red light, and speeding. I, I really do not anticipate that we'll see another year like 2014 again, just because we are a lot more focused now. And uh, unfortunately, we learned a lot of lessons with, with the deaths of right. the pedestrians. Uh, our supervisors, they are also tasked with being aware 
as to where the next hotspot may be yeah. in terms of traffic. So to not put all of our eggs in one basket, so to speak, there may be another intersection in the precinct that something is going on. And if we see an uptick of motor vehicle collisions, we'll visit the site and see exactly what it is. Sometimes it's a sign that the wind blew off or vandalism, and we can ask for our partners at the DOT to just uh, bring that back or implement something new. But we do rely on enforcement as the first part of the three-pronged traffic uh, approach, which is enforcement, education, and engineering. Yeah. Do you worry about what the next hotspot's going to be? Do you spend time analyzing the streets and the data? Yes, we do. Yes, absolutely. What we have in place is we have a computer program that tabulates the motor vehicle collisions that come in. And every month, we, the program identifies collision-prone locations, or CPLs, and it works on a point system. So if we have a high amount of motor vehicle collisions where there are no injuries, it makes its way into the program. If we have a lesser amount of collisions with some injuries, again, it makes its way into the program. And a traffic fatality is an automatic. It'll qualify for the collision-prone location. So since we get this on a monthly basis, what we'll do is we'll pool our resources and conduct enforcement there, and it does help, it does abate the condition, and then we'll move on to the next spot. But even if there is an intersection along 96th Street that doesn't make this list, we still spend our time there just because of the historical problem that it's right. become. Mm-hmm. Are you worried about the bike lane or do you think? I think that the, the bike lane from what we see on Columbus Avenue, it has helped in terms of reducing the injuries. What we as a police department on our part, we have to ensure that the double parking uh, situation is corrected because once a vehicle double parks, it's almost like it's in the middle of the road mm-hmm. because the protected bike lane, uh, it takes up a former parking lane. So once You have the protected bike lane, a row of vehicles that are parked legally, and then now this double parked vehicle. It literally feels like it's in the middle of the road, and it can cause the traffic to be reduced to one lane if you have double parkers on either side. So uh, we have noticed that that's a newly manifested problem, but it's something that we continue to address. So you'll be on the double parkers? Yes, we have to. We have to for the sake of keeping the traffic flowing. Otherwise, it comes to a complete standstill. And right now, one of the recurring problem is Columbus Avenue from 97th to 100th Street. So we're working on that every day. Shifting gears a little bit, on 93rd Street earlier this fall, there were a series of attacks and retaliatory attacks involving middle schoolers. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about why you think that happened and mm-hmm. what you did to prevent it, and also why we haven't seen any more. Okay. Well, what we saw there was that uh, we have two housing developments within the confines of the precinct. We have the Douglas Houses up uh, north of 100th Street, and then we have the Wise Towers down by the lower 90s. And even before my time here, there is a long-standing feud between the young persons who live in both developments. And both developments do have their respective gangs or crews, as we call them, the Douglas Houses, uh, the Columbus Avenue Gunners, they uh, turn out of there and out of the Wise Towers is the Money Comes First crew. But what we were seeing on 93rd Street was that 
some of of the younger younger kids who live in Douglas were being targeted by the younger residents of the Wise Towers. Now, they were not old enough to be part of these crews, and they did not necessarily identify themselves with these crews. So it seems that it was more territorial than anything else, and just not liking the fact that someone from a rival housing development is attending a school near their development. Now, there's something that that's something that that student can't really help Mm -hmm. if they're zoned to attend that school or their parents want them there for any other reason there is absolutely no reason for them to be uh, assaulted or or robbed or picked on just because of where they reside what we noticed in november was an uptick in just that Mm -hmm. where residents of the douglas houses were being assaulted and much like traffic as soon as we see these reports we prefer to saturate the area with a uniform presence. That way we're no further away than the next corner. And we also like to increase the awareness. So we reached out to our stakeholders. Uh, We reached out to our principals, our teachers, our local media, just to put the word out to the parents that this is going on and we just want more eyes and more ears because Uh, the best way to help us is to be the best witness possible because sometimes we can't be everywhere. And when we raised the awareness, uh, some people became very uncomfortable, but I did feel that it was more beneficial than hurtful for parents to know exactly what's going on. That way they can give their child better safety tips such as don't use the phone unnecessarily in front of a crowd of people if you need help go to your next, the nearest merchant, ask for the phone, or just go back to the school. And we were able to make some arrests and also stem the tide, so to speak. And with an information campaign, it gives us and our detectives time to really study and investigate and find out who is committing the crime, as opposed to just being passive about it and allowing more crimes to occur. It's been working in our favor and we have made significant arrests. And do you have officers stationed just nonstop at the two NYCHA building, NYCHA developments? To directly answer the question, we don't have a specific set of officers in the developments. Instead, we have our regular sector officers who are responsible for a geographical area and they will pay attention to the crimes and the conditions that are happening and uh, later uh, in late last year we had our midnight officers stationed inside of the Douglas houses just for uh, undetermined amount of time just to ensure that there's a presence and a lot of the residents responded positively they would walk up to the officers and thank them because usually what we see it's just the select few of people that are causing the majority of the problems. So that's our goal, to find out who these people are and address them appropriately to correct the problems that are there. You mentioned getting help from the community as being very important. Do you think there's less of a stop snitching or a don't talk to the police Mm -hmm. atmosphere up here on the Upper West Side? Well, I think that, that 
I think that there is, and something that surprised me and, and I was very proud of was, and we've spoken about, was the homicide of Bubakar Camera, mm -hmm. who was working out of the store on Amsterdam Avenue and 104th Street. And in that case, the killers, they removed the surveillance system from the store, so it put us at a disadvantage where we were now looking for video surveillance or any other kind of imagery from side streets or corridors, and we could not immediately identify who these three men were. And once we reached out to Crime Stoppers and we submitted the request for media attention, a lot of phone calls came pouring in, and had it not been for the community's help, we would not have been able to identify these three men. And as you know, they were uh, successfully indicted under federal standards because of the severity of their crimes. So I do feel that there is a sense of trust that's coming back. I, I mean, people are not outrightly walking into the precinct telling us things, but we do encourage the sharing of information because the residents and, and, and the workers and the visitors are the ones who are out there and, and see things and are able to ingest things a lot more than we can. And the only way to make this a better place is to do it together. I'm a firm believer in that. The precinct is so diverse. There's people living in Niger developments. Mm -hmm. There's extremely wealthy people, mm -hmm. young people, older people, mm -hmm. people with disabilities. Mm -hmm. How do you serve all of those different communities? That, that's a very good point because this is actually the first precinct that I've worked in that the way I've described it, it's almost at odds with itself. We have so many different people representing all sides of the socioeconomic strata and somehow they're all able to coexist. Our officers, they are very well balanced to the point where civilian complaints were significantly down last year. They are trained on de-escalation techniques, on meeting people where they are, so to speak. Most of the people that we come in contact with are frustrated and our officers are as empathetic as they can be and they're able to toggle between different situations. So as you said, our officers may respond to an apartment where someone says that their $50,000 timepiece has gone missing and they may respond to a shelter where someone says, you know, that their $20 watch was taken from their unit. But we treat them all with the same level of importance, with the same level of urgency. As the police commissioner says, we look to make it safe and fair everywhere. The neighborhood is, is very affluent, it's gentrifying. Mm -hmm. Do you think that people have a false sense of security, of, of not having to watch their purse or their bag? Uh, to a degree, yes. And, and something that, that we've been pushing at our meetings is crime prevention, because a lot of the crimes that we record up here are preventable. It is a very nice neighborhood, but we also have to take into account that there are persons out there who don't have to go to work. So instead, they have a full day to roam around. So if you're in a store, we do not recommend to leave a purse in a shopping cart with your credit cards or your phones. We recommend that you keep these items on your person. If you feel that someone is unusually close to you or if they bump you, we recommend that you look right away. We don't recommend that you confront the person, but by just taking a quick survey of your items and if you see that it's missing and someone bumped you, you would be able to give us a physical description of who did it and it gives us a better starting point uh, for our investigation and we would be more successful. 
in our apprehension efforts, one of the trends that we're seeing lately is Riverside Park. We do have an officer in Riverside Park, but the players in the soccer field, they get very into their game and they leave credit cards and phones off to the side. And unfortunately, that just takes a matter of seconds for someone to pass by. And now they're using your credit card and all of the headaches that come with that, mm -hmm. with restoring your credit scores and just calling your credit card company. So we, we, we do believe that a lot of these crimes can be uh, prevented. And I believe that we can do it. If we band together and get this information out, uh, you would see that there would be a significant crime reduction. Sometimes if you look at the Comstat sheet, it looks like you know the command is, is, is a runaway train, but it's not. A lot of the crimes are property crimes. There are right. also a lot of scams over the telephone. Well, you were promoted um, recently yes. to deputy inspector. Thank you. Yes. Congratulations. Thank you. And part of that was you mentioned the success of the precinct. But are there things that you could be doing better or that are goals of yours? Criminals can get very savvy, such as putting skimmer devices on ATMs. If we can put the information out to the residents of the neighborhood and ensure that it's accepted, that it's received, that it's acknowledged, as better communicators, uh, being more transparent, we could achieve a lot, more so than with traditional crime-fighting methods because, uh, again, a lot of these crimes are preventable and they happen under the most uh, quiet of circumstances. So someone shopping in a supermarket is very difficult for a regular patrol officer to be able to detect that, that someone's removing your purse out of your shopping cart. So if we can be more aware and make ourselves harder targets, so to speak, I think we can achieve a lot, a lot together. And you would see significant crime reductions. So that is our goal, to keep communicating that and, and to keep letting the folks know that we'll do everything possible to, to apprehend these individuals. But in the meantime, let's make it hard for them. Absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Ms. Ross. Thank you. Okay. We want to hear your thoughts on how you think the 24th Precinct is doing and where you'd like officers to focus their attention. You can contact me, Emily Frost, on Twitter at efrost1, or you can talk with your neighbors on our new platform, Neighborhood Square, at neighborhoodsquare.com, or on our Facebook page. <laughs>